welcome to How I Got Here, the inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. Hello, everyone, and welcome to How I Got Here, Mozio and FocusWire's weekly podcast about innovators in travel and transportation. Today, we're joined by Azim Barodawala of Volantio. Volantio is the global leader in post-booking profit optimization and has had quite a wild ride uh, with several name changes. Uh, so I think I'm going to leave my intro at that, because, uh, Azim, as I think you know, we like to start off every podcast the same way, which is to say, first of all, welcome, but then ask you to explain the twists and turns of how you got here. Thanks, uh, David, and uh, and thanks so much, Kevin, as well. It's it's great to be here as well. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I don't know if you guys ever watched the show Lost. Have you ever seen the show Lost? Uh, An episode yeah. or two. The the very the very very first episode it took me a while to get into the show, but the very first episode, the, like the, the show starts brilliantly. There's this guy. And he's lying down in what looks like a bed of grass. And the show just opens with his eyes like opening up. And there's this like ominous music in the background. It looks like these airplane parts are falling from the sky and nobody knows what's going on. And it's just like, there's like wreckage on fire. And like, there's just like, you have no idea what has just like hit you. And this guy looks like entirely like a deer in the headlights. Uh, and that's that's kind of, I guess that, when I always think about what's the image that best sums up what I felt like uh, in the first week or two of what has become a seven-year, uh, nearly seven-year run um, doing what I'm doing, that would be it. Um, so I, uh, I come out of what you would consider to be a pretty kind of, um, you know, traditional path, you know, I, I, I finished up business school uh, in 2007. Uh, I went to work for, you know, kind of a white shoe global consulting firm, the Boston Consulting Group. I worked there for about, you know, four years, uh, then got the chance to do what a lot of people do is leave. And I became head of strategy of an airline in Australia. Uh, and then kind of my path diverged. Uh, and I ended up uh, on my back with my eyes open with flaming wreckage around me, sort of. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, anyway, I, uh, the, the first couple of weeks and the first, I would say year was, was particularly tough because, um, you know, within the first, I would say a few weeks, um, I, I had joined a company, um, that essentially is, is the predecessor company of what would become Volantio. That company has since been divested by us and, um, and, and doesn't really, um, you know, kind of is not really a part of our company anymore, but, um, that company was, uh, called Adioso. Uh, and um, was focused on um, meta search. So it was focused on kind of creating a new meta search uh, engine. It was founded in Australia. And I had met the original founders of that business back in 2013 through a mutual contact. And, uh, you know, after a few months of talking, they offered me the chance to join as a CEO and um, I was looking to do my next thing. And it sounded like a really interesting opportunity. And um, maybe I should have done a bit more due diligence before accepting the offer, but, um, but I did, you know, probably a little bit of ego as well played into that too. Um, and I accepted it and then, um, uh, you know, and, and, and then I found out we we faced quite a few challenges. So within the first, 
uh, day, um, uh, two of our employees out of five um, basically said that they were planning on quitting uh, because they hadn't been paid in six weeks. Um, we, I found out that our uh, um, server providers were about to cut us off because we had about three or four months of unpaid server bills and about $60,000 in past due expenses. Uh, we had about $2,000 in monthly recurring revenue at the time uh, and about $5,000 of cash in the bank. So that, that was kind of week one. And it wasn't a really great week because um, I remember that I had decided to pay for my own ticket to go to Australia from the U.S. just thinking that I was just going to get reimbursed. And then I was like, it's probably going to be a while um, before I can get uh, reimbursed. Um, so, uh, you know, but I, I really believed in the technology that had originally been built. Um, I really believed in the, the CTO of that company. Adioso, the predecessor company, Fen Bailey. Um, and, and I really felt that there was something there that could ultimately be um, used to build something bigger. And that was the start that we had. I just, I just didn't quite have a sense of how bad things were um, financially, um, kind of until I got my hands into it. Um, we also had six years of unfiled tax returns, which would lead to $120,000 in penalties from the IRS, um, which uh, was not great either. Um, but two years after that, we were cash flow positive, uh, and we were able to raise capital. Um, you know, another year and a half after that, we'd raised funds from um, some of the biggest names in um, kind of travel technology venture capital, like JetBlue Technology Ventures and uh, IAG and, and and others. So we were really able to kind of move the ball forward, and it's something that I was I was quite um, I was quite proud of. Um, so how we actually did that was through a, like kind of a, as you said, a bit of a winding path. Um, the first thing that we really had to do was to stabilize the ship by raising capital. So we were able to raise very quickly about $350,000 um, in 2013, which stabilized the ship. Um, and, <laughs> uh, a good portion of that came from um, you know, direct acquaintances in my family, which was probably a bad idea. Um, but, um, but, you know, it's not something I would do again in the future. Um, but we, we were able to stabilize things. We pivoted the business away from being focused on consumers to working directly with airlines. Um, we took one aspect of what Adioso did, which was a flight alerts product, um, and we were able to successfully market it to airlines. And Jetstar ended up becoming our first customer. Um, and, and we grew that and, uh, you know, and from that, um, ultimately within a couple of years, the business had started, you know, picking up some customers. We got Qantas, um, we got a few other airlines in Asia Pacific and, and, um, we were very lean and very scrappy and we were able to make it, um, to become cash flow positive. And then we had another kind of big aha moment in early 2016 when we met a, I was just having breakfast in San Francisco with, um, a guy who would ultimately become the VP of pricing for um, Alaska Airlines, a guy named Kevin Gurr. And he said, you know, you guys have all the pieces in place to solve this huge challenge for uh, revenue managers at airlines, which is the fact that, you know, once somebody books a ticket, like all the revenue management systems are designed to optimize revenue 
up until the point that you book the ticket. But after that, you can't do anything. You can't kind of transact on that ticket. And we can't, you know, transact on that ticket again if we, if demand profile changes on the flight. Like, it'd be great if there was a tool that would let us do that. And we thought that was a really amazing idea. And he said that you guys have all the pieces in place to do that. Um, and we decided to expand our platform. And that ended up becoming a very, very successful uh, product for us that then allowed us to really kind of catapult forward um, you know, over the last few years to, to get to where we are, um, uh, you, you know, today. So, um, you know, things I would say at the beginning of the year, if we had this conversation where the 2020 was going to be this uh, really, really strong year for us, unfortunately, due to the coronavirus crisis, um, uh, you, you know, from a business standpoint, obviously, it's a much more hu larger human toll. But from, from our perspective as a business, it's been a bit tough. But um, but, you know, our tool is only going to become more valuable coming out of this crisis. Um, and, um, you know, we're, we're really looking forward to, to moving forward out of this. So I'm leaving a lot out of the story because I don't want to, you know, drone on and on. But, um, but you <laughs> know, okay. we, we had to, um, you know, really kind of, uh, uh, you know, rethink ourselves a couple of times. And, um, and, and uh, one thing I always think about when we have these conversations is that we really – we didn't, we didn't really have the luxury of, you know, thinking about a really cool idea and then getting to market test it and then, you know, getting early user feedback and doing all the things you always hear about when people are like, oh, I built this cool business. No, like we, we, we had no money. Like we were, we were running out of cash and running out of time. We had to figure out a way to kind of just make it work. Um, and, and that's what we did. So, uh, hi, Azim, it's Kevin here. Thank you very much for joining us. I mean, it, it's interesting. You said you joined uh, what was then Adioso and realized the state of the, or the, you know, the financial peril that the company was in. How quickly did you stabilize that? You said you managed to get a loan um, fairly quickly. Uh, how, how long was that period? And how did you kind of, I know it's a fairly small company, uh, Adioso, but how long was that period? And how did you manage to keep people on board with you? Uh, yeah, well, so it took about a year to fully pivot the business out, um, because, um, you know, that business had history and that business had folks who really believed in, yeah. um, a consumer focus. And that was emotionally painful for certain folks within that business to realize that maybe their original vision of the business didn't fit with what we were going to become. And, um, and therefore, maybe they didn't fit with what we were going to become. Um, and that, I think, is part of every founding story of a company. Um, and, uh, and that was difficult for me, personally. I've never had to go through that. Uh, and it was difficult for them, too. Um, so not all of the team stayed on. Um, some left. Um, yeah. and, uh, and we shrunk. Uh, and then we grew. Um, so about a year to really kind of stabilize things. Uh, uh, when we think about kind of when our business as Volantia was for, uh, formed and founded, it's more um, kind of 2014 because we really kind of think of that first year as sort of winding down the, the Adioso focus and moving on to, to becoming what would become Volantio and changing the name of the business and, um, and, and, uh, and kind of divesting um, that old focus. I, I remember back in my days as editor of Teen News, we wrote a, a profile about Adioso in uh, the summer of, I think it was 2010. And then a year later, we did a follow-up with them and said, you know, what did you learn? I'm assuming it was Tom that had answered the questions, you know, and he said then that they, that it'd been quite a dramatic year for them. 
in that kind of 2010, 2011 period. And the, a lot of assumptions that they made about virtual interlining, which is now a, a fairly hot topic in travel tech. You know, said so at that period, they hadn't worked out like just quite how hard and there was no demand for it back then. I mean, it's, it's interesting that, that you did come in and it took a couple of years, but it was a very, con- I guess, a very concerted decision to take the company away from a consumer focus, something into B2B land. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting story. I mean, uh, I, I remember one of the first days when I was at the company and I, I said to Tom and Fenn, I said a year from now, um, uh, I could envision a company that is wildly successful and nobody even knows the name of the company. Nobody even right. knows the name yeah. of, no, nobody ever knows the name of Adioso. Um, and I just remember looking and, and, uh, and, 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 you know, and to Fen that seemed completely normal. Like, yeah, of course. Uh, and, and I remember looking at Tom and he seemed horrified by the prospect of that. Um, <laughs> Yeah. because to him he was very very proud of that name and very very proud of the kind of what would i mean which is not just him i mean anybody who runs sort of a very strong consumer focused business believes in the brand that the consumer sees whereas you know for volantio you know we work with some of the largest airlines in the world yet nobody knows who we are um and we're happy with that because for us it's all about the technology um and it's all about you know ultimately building a great product that airlines find valuable um they're the ones who pay our bills ultimately yeah so, so I, have, I have a question and i'm surprised you kind of didn't go over this a little bit but why didn't you leave <laughs> the minute that you got there and you <laughs> saw the plane exploding a proverbial plane exploding above you um you know and, and, and rocketing down i mean i think most people would go well I, I, there's two parts of this question one one you leave and two did you feel like there was a, a lack of trust that they weren't transparent with you they know, right off the bat and saying, here's what you're about to walk into. I, I would, it, it's not even so much the situation that I think is stunning to me. It's more that they, they, that they didn't seem to, you know, tell you. Um, no, I mean, for, first off, I, I don't, I don't fault Tom or Fenn um, for, uh, for anything really in, in that regard of, you know, um, of potentially kind of misleading me in, in any way they, they didn't. I, I asked them plenty of questions. Um, they even gave me uh, uh, references of people I could talk to. Um, I, I felt myself in the sense of being naive to a certain degree and not knowing necessarily the right questions to a- ask. Um, so if anything, I put it on myself of, hey, you know, and, and have some lessons learned for, hey, the next time uh, you get offered a gig, uh, these are the probably the questions that you should um, ask as, uh, you know, as a, as an entrepreneur. Um, so they, 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 they never kind of, uh, you know, uh, deliberately, I would say, um, you know, misled, uh, me, but I, you know, the thing is, is that, um, so the question about why, why didn't I leave? Um, I, I don't want this to come off the wrong way, but I, I really, I wanted the shot at trying to fix it. Um, I, I, I think that there's some folks and, and maybe the, um, I think being an entrepreneur sometimes attracts a certain personality of, of just wanting, like of just trying to throw caution to the wind a little bit uh, and uh, <laughs> you know, and going for it. And if you don't have that in you, like if you're not okay, you know, with that, with the risk and with the sort of the, the, the risk tolerance, then this isn't really for you. You know, I, I could have gone back to McKinsey or BCG or somewhere else and worked uh, and, and made a hell of a lot more money than I've made any of the years in the last seven years um, and had a much more stable kind of, uh, a, you know, 
uh, existence. I mean, gosh, this last seven years have been, except for the last few months, have been one of the greatest bull markets ever, you know. Um, but uh, but I wouldn't have had the chance to build something to the extent that I have had uh, in the last seven years here. Um, and I've learned so much about building a company and running a company in the last seven years that I would never have gotten in anything else that I would have done. So that desire to have that experience as part of my career was something that I really cared about. Plus, I'm passionate about travel. I really, really wanted to have this opportunity to try to build something meaningful in the travel space um, and, and have it be my own. Um, so that was really why I decided to, um, to stay. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, and I like the guys a lot too, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I wouldn't have stayed if I didn't like, um, you know, working with, with the folks who were there and, and really kind of being in the same boat to try to get us going again. So I want to delve a little bit deeper into, you know, your products, because I, I think one of the missions of this podcast is that everyone knows about the Expedias and the booking.coms and trip advisors of the world. And um, that's kind of what I think actually most people, when they get into travel, they think, oh, well, I go to Italy. Sure, I can start a travel company, but they don't under, understand the underlying you know, tech systems and economics. And your company is a very interesting uh, kind of, uh, I don't know, symbol of, of those, those airline economics. Can you go a little bit into why an airline might actually want to resell seats or oversell, have oversell protection? These things that I think many, you know, even avid travelers go, you know, why are you offering people a thousand dollars at the door <laughs> like, to, yeah. you know, to, to not take this flight? Isn't that, you know, incredibly bad business, but clearly like there's a method to the madness. Absolutely. So I'm going to focus on our, what I would consider the revenue side of our, of our product portfolio and not kind of the um, alerting side of the portfolio, which was the initial focus of our products, which surprisingly today that alerting product still is having a renaissance um, in the post-COVID world. And if we have time, I'm happy to discuss about it afterwards. But let's stick on the um, kind of the revenue rebook uh, product um, and the oversell protection product um, and, and why an airline would want to use that. I mean, and what does it mean from a consumer's uh, perspective? Because I think that's really where the rubber meets the road. Um, uh, so let's first talk about something that most consumers are very well um, aware of, which is an oversold flight. Now you're all, you all know this experience, get to the airport. Um, you know, you've got, you woke up at like three o'clock in the morning to make it in time for a 6am flight. You get there and then at like 515 in the morning, they're like, Hey, you know, we're oversold. Would you like to take the 11am flight? And you're like, I would have liked to take the 11am flight if you would have told me, a, you know, 8pm last night or, or 9pm last night. But, um, but, uh, but now it's six o'clock in the morning. I just, I just don't feel like it. Right. Um, that's people think that something went wrong um, from an airline standpoint, like oh, the airline screwed up, you know, they oversold the flight, but what they don't realize is everything went right in that scenario from an airline's perspective, 100% that was right. That is intended to happen. That is the right thing to happen from a revenue management standpoint. Nothing went wrong from the airline standpoint. It's how they deal with it that can be improved. But, but from a standpoint of whether or not that should have happened, it absolutely should have happened. So why is that the case? And it comes down to the fact that when you buy a ticket for your flight, there is no guarantee that you're going to show up for that flight. And every time a flight departs with an empty seat, that's revenue that the airlines lose. So the airlines have plenty of calculations to know what the typical, what they call show rate is on a flight. So, you know, on, on a flight, you know, maybe only about 95% of the passengers or 98% of the passengers 
who book a ticket will actually show up. So imagine the plane is, you know, 400, uh, sorry, is, is 200 seat aircraft um, and only 98% of the people show up. That means on any average flight, typically four seats are sold, but nobody actually shows up for the flight. And that's not great for the airline. They think, hmm, you know, I could have actually sold those seats to somebody else. So they start selling them. And that's how, the, that's how airlines start overselling, you know, flights. So they'll oversell a flight by four seats roughly. But what happens is that on average, four people don't show up. But sometimes six people don't show up and sometimes two people don't show up. And uh, when more people show than are expected to show, the airlines have to basically, you know, bump a passenger. And that's the situation that you get into. So what our tool does is basically rather than having, so we don't attempt to solve overselling. You know, we're not going to ever solve overbooking because overbooking is not a problem that is intended to be quote unquote solved. Um, it, we attempt to make that process flow better, better for consumers and better for the airlines um, and less stressful for the gate agents. So what we try to do is improve the communication between the airline and the customers, make it much easier for customers to actually know their options about alternative flights that they can take, make it virtual so it happens over a, um, you know, over the phone or over, uh, you know, over kind of an app or, you know, email as opposed to having to happen face to face at the gate um, and trying to push wherever possible that process sooner. So in some cases, you don't have to actually come to the airport. Um, and, and be there at the last minute. Um, uh, and, you know, in the world that we live in now with coronavirus, um, you know, that's going to just become more and more important because, you know, that face-to-face -face interaction is the thing that we're trying to reduce, you know. Um, and especially, as you know, when a flight's oversold, people tend to get a little bit voluble. Um, and, uh, you know, and they, there may be some, you know, a little bit of anger coming up. And if we can manage all of that, uh, you know, uh, so people don't have to have a lot of face-to-face -face interaction um, and have a better outcome. That's great. So that that's sort of the entire, um, you know, oversell protection uh, product, um, which I would say is solving a problem that most people are, you know, aware of, um, but it's just kind of a, a new way to solve it. The revenue rebook is an entirely kind of new way of thinking about the process after um, you book a ticket, and I'm happy to go into that unless you have any questions about sort of the the, the oversold protection. Yeah, I the oversold thing, and yeah. maybe I'm showing a, a lack of knowledge at my end here, but I, I was always under the impression that the oversold kind of things that happen in aviation was was a, a particularly North American, for fear of generalizing, kind of concept, rather than something that happens at the same kind of scale in say in european countries where i am is that is that correct is it or am i am i completely wrong on that um you know i i, I think it's it's very prevalent in the united states but um but you know you look at asia for example it definitely happens uh, in asia um uh it, it definitely happens um it, it, to a certain extent as well in um in Europe, I just, I, I don't, I mean, like some of our European customers as well, um, uh, you know, are looking for ways or, or they were historically looking for ways to, to push the booking profile on their flight higher. Um, 
but with with regulation coming in there's some very specific regulation which you know i don't want to throw on a bunch of jargon but there's a very expensive regulation that came into europe that penalizes airlines yeah. for overbooking um yeah and that is one of the reasons why a lot of european airlines tend to be more conservative um but in a post-covid world where people are incredibly fickle airlines are gonna have to oversell their flights a bit more otherwise they're just gonna you know leave with only 60 or 70 percent of the seats filled on the flight um, because of the show rates right now are so um so volatile and, and so then uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, the revenue management part then yes absolutely so that one is really exciting i mean that was the one where kevin gurr basically suggested this whole thing to us i, I wish i could take credit yeah. for it but it's, it was really his idea <laughs> um and uh, and so I, I i take no credit for that it's it's uh you know he's as i said the vp of pricing and revenue management at alaska airlines and and this was entirely his idea to us so full credit to him um and he basically so the way that works essentially is um every every seat on a flight has a value to the airline and it is a function of the price that a customer is willing to pay pay and the probability that that seat will actually get sold. Um, and some seats, not every seat's created equal, right? You know, the 7 a.m. flight from uh, Atlanta to LaGuardia is gonna be worth more than the, you know, 2 p.m. flight. Um, yeah. So the idea here is that if those discrepancies, to the extent that they exist, um, a week, two weeks before departure, but typically kind of seven to five days prior, which is where our tool really plays the best. Um, you know, you can see that you have a higher value flight um, and you can see that you have a quote unquote lower value flight. So if, if, if the marginal seat on that 7 a.m. flight is worth to the airline, uh, you know, $400, um, so that basically means that if I could squeeze one more seat onto that plane, it would be worth 400 bucks to me. And the, and the, that same marginal cost on a 1 PM flight was only a hundred dollars. Then there's a $300 spread there of, you know, in economic terms of, of arbitrage, you know, because it's the same asset. It's the same Atlanta LaGuardia flight. It's just at a different time of day, having a different value. So, so what our tool does is let airlines unlock that arbitrage value, let it unlock that value by making an offer five days before departure to the guy who's on the 7 a.m. flight to say, hey, you know, are you willing to take 150 bucks to move to the 2 p.m. flight ahead of time? Now you're confirmed on that flight. And if you say yes, now the airline's basically cleared, you know, uh, say they paid the person $150, they've cleared an extra 150 because, you know, the marginal cost or marginal revenue would be 400 on the one that they're getting. And the, and the displacement cost is 100 on the other flight and they only had to pay somebody 150. Um, so the total cost was 250 and they got 400 for it. So they cleared 150, which is great for the airline. And our airline partners are really loving that solution today because it's an innovative new way to make money that's not made by, you know, charging for an extra bag or <laughs> any sort of an extra, you know, uh, ancillary. While it is kind of an ancillary revenue source, it is completely new and it really gives them the chance to, um, to benefit passengers um, as well as generating criminal profit. And that's why it's really exciting. Now you said, um, if we can wind back a little bit, you said your first customer, correct me if I'm wrong, was Jetstar. And yeah. um, one of the things that's often that we found when talking to startup founders is, is that they often, for a, a, 
at the beginning often have problems getting a foot in the door of their potential customers, whether it's an airline or a hotel, depending on what they do, for example. But, uh, you know, Jetstar was your former employer. Um, was it an easier kind of conversation to have to convince them that you had something that was worth looking at because you had a connection with them through the previous previous role that you had? Or was it something else? Yeah, so that definitely helped. So if, if I have to kind of give advice to folks who are thinking about this, uh, you know, and, and founding a, a travel technology type startup, there's sort of at a minimum three really huge challenges. And you've hit on one of them, but there are two other ones that are are just as challenging. One is sort of just getting your foot in the door. Like, how do you even get on their radar? And for me, you know, having a connection, knowing I knew the chief commercial officer at the time, I was able to meet with him and show him some data. Like that definitely helped. But that was just like one of the three big steps. The other, the second step, which everybody always forgets, and I didn't even know this existed until I had to go through it, is contracting, procurement, and legal. Like that will kill more startups than you will ever imagine. And these are all, they all play like the graveyard of, of startups because, <laughs> you know, the, the, these, these companies, they have in-house counsel that can just drag out the contracting process. Um, yeah. And, you know, for us, you know, that could end up costing ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 in legal fees. So while we had the initial conversation in, you know, August of 2013, we didn't get a contract signed until March of 2014. And then the third hurdle came in, which is actually the technology integration, uh, which took another kind of five months to do. So, you know, it's not just about, hey, I have a really cool idea and I got somebody really high up at the airline to buy into it. It's about, hey, did you actually get a contract? Did you get the technology to work? And then ultimately, did you actually convince them to write you a check and pay you? Because, oh, by the way, sometimes they can delay payments and do all sorts of other funny things because they can and you're small. So, yeah. And, and, and another thing that um, kind of related to that question really is that, you know, when you are on the, knocking on the door, sometimes, again, whether it's a hotel or an airline or whatever kind of supplier that a, a tech provider might be wanting to work with, they don't quite understand or they don't either don't understand the product or they they offer some degree of resistance towards it because they can't see the wood for the trees, as we would say here. I mean, what kind of resistance, if any, did you get from airlines when you were trying to convince them that this is something that they should do? Huge. Um, so it, it's, it's very challenging, especially when you deal with an airline uh, and, and, air, uh, and a part of the airline, like revenue management, where you, which tends to attract some of the best and the brightest folks um, um, who really believe in, uh, you know, in what they're doing. Um, they've been schooled a particular way in revenue management, which is that revenue management occurs before a ticket is booked, not after. Um, so to getting them to change that perspective is a challenge. But I'll tell you, one of the biggest things that's helped us um, is, and I haven't really mentioned as part of our story, is that in 2019, after we had started achieving some success, we were able to form a partnership with uh, Amadeus. Um, yeah. And uh, that has been Honestly, if there's one thing in our history that's in our recent history, it's been the most transformative change for us. It's been having that partnership in place because suddenly we have kind of the, um, the, the you know, the backing of, of a very well-respected global brand um, who has been very helpful in kind of help, uh, you know, taking us to airlines, um, giving us warm introductions to the right people there and really helping us to help them understand the value in what we're doing. Um, and they've also tremendously reduced the technical friction that's involved 
and installing our solution with with the airlines. So both of those things have been very transformative for us. Um, and uh, and that's kind of how we've gotten through and started to cut through um, and get more airlines engaged, even in the middle of this huge crisis right now. Yeah. So that's a perfect segue. Um, so you had a good experience with Amadeus. Um, I don't know very many people who've had great experiences with GDSs. Um, I know that many of them are often uh, very territorial. Uh, you know, Mozio aggregates ground transportation. Um, many, more than one GDS has said they want to move into that eventually, and that was five years ago. Hasn't, but still has prevented us from working with their airlines. So they, you know, we've you know, realize these guys can be allies, but most of the time they can get in the way. And I'd love to understand, like, you know, how did you navigate that? You know, did competitive pressures from them come up? Did they think, well, this is something we might want to do? We are the airline IT guys. And, and how did you, you know, and I have a follow-up question about that, about your ideas about the future of GDSs, but let's leave it at that for now. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm sure, um, you know, if, if they hadn't thought about doing it themselves, I'm sure... Um, I, I'm sure, I, I mean, I'm, I'm almost positive that um, uh, internally that they've looked at this because, you know, Amadeus has, looked, has, has got a very kind of capable team and I'm sure they've looked at a lot of, you know, strong ideas and, and this isn't, like what we're doing is not something so novel that it's never been thought of before. Um, but I think uh, ultimately it just comes down to, like with everything, this is, if there's one sort of, people remember only one thing out of this whole experience, this whole podcast or whatever, it's just that it, everything comes down to execution. Ideas are great, you know, to chatter around and, and, and talk about. But at the end of the day, it's what you do, what you're able to actually get done that matters. And execution is the most important thing. So even in this case, you know, um, uh, you know at least with respect to us, they were able to, to realize that um, it might be faster for them to, to work, with, um, work with us, um, you know, to be able to bring the solution to market for their customers faster. Um, and, uh, and essentially that's what we ultimately did. They, um, uh, you know, they, uh, we, but we did have to be like just incredibly transparent with them about like what is in your product roadmap, um, and ensure that whatever we talked about with them was just like that, what we knew about like what we were doing, um, and that that steered clear of anything that could ultimately be um, considered competitive for them. Otherwise, there would always be this gray area. Um, and, and we also had to structure, to be quite honest with you, the way our relationship worked. And I, I can't go into a ton of detail about how our relationship you know, works on a commercial side, but we had to, ultimately, we had to be willing, we being Volantio, to, to give up a few things for the sake of the relationship as, as one does with any relationship, you know, business or personal in life. Um, there's a lot of give and take and ultimately that's led to a much more harmonious relationship with Amadeus in the future. And one where we really consider them our closest, one of our closest partners. And I, I suppose another significant or it seemed significant at the time. I remember writing about it, but uh, you went through the, uh, the, the hangar 51 program. Absolutely, which is, yeah. Uh, IAG's kind of accelerator. IAG, for those that are listening and that don't know, is the uh, the parent company of British Airways, Iberia, and a number of others. Um, f first of all, um, as in, can you tell us about that process? We've spoken to lots of people on how I got here that went through Y Combinator, for example, um, but not somebody that's been through um, an airline based accelerator program and and secondly what i'm interested in in particular is that they did invest in you at the end of that process yeah what does that mean for your 
ability to work with other airlines that perhaps perhaps aren't in the alliance that BA and the others are, are into? Does that kind of restrict some kind of, or impose some kind of exclusivity on you? Um, no. Uh, so that the short answer is no. There's there's no res- commercial restrictions um, that are tied to uh, you know the investment. That was something that we all agreed would not be in the interest of their um, you know investment. Um, yeah, sure. But but um, but yeah, let me talk a bit about that. It's it's kind of interesting because um, the cap table of Volantio lists Y Combinator as an investor. Um, okay. So we, we are a uh, you know at least uh, theoretically in paper a Y Combinator company because of the fact that you know we came out of you know Adioso is still is still part of our DNA. Um, uh, you know I don't think I've ever heard from Y Combinator in the six seven years that I've been here. Um, <laughs> Despite multiple reach outs for me, so hey, why come here if you're listening? Respond to my emails because I'd love to hear back from you. And uh, but uh, but in all in all seriousness, um, uh, the um, uh, Tango 51 experience was great. Uh, those guys really know what they're doing, um, and they've been very dedicated to this program. It's been incredibly um, uh, beneficial for us, and uh, you, you know we went through it in 2000 and. 17 and you know they 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 focus on some of these really tiny details like you know making sure that the contracting processes are really simple for startups um yeah so that you don't waste a ton of time making sure that the program is only 10 weeks long so it forces everybody to be focused on output um and i i think they did a really good job uh and it, it allowed us to really be focused and demonstrate to them the value that we could drive in 10 weeks um, and, you know, and Qantas had a similar program called Avro, um, which have since, uh, you know, discontinued. Um, but coming out of that, both Avro, both Qantas and uh, IAG ultimately did invest in us. Um, uh, and it was kind of a byproduct of having had them have the ability to kick tires um, and, uh, and, you know, and see, you know, you know, what we were like. So, yeah, that was good. I want to quickly go back to we were talking about GDSs and I kind of ask more of a broad question and I think we should wrap yeah. it up for today. But, um, you know, we've interviewed a fair amount of uh, kind of back end uh, technology systems, Silverrail, um, Freebird, which does something interesting around kind of in your area around flight rebookings. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, it seems like a lot of these guys are doing the innovation that like GDS is frankly should be doing, you, you think. Um, you know, one of my first kind of what the fuck moments was realizing how extractive a lot of the GDSs were. And there's been a lot of movements to try to kind of, uh, you know, uh, move away from the GDSs. And ironically, you say uh, you went through IAG. And I'm pretty sure IAG and British Airways is one of the first ones to publish an a- API that was not GDS dependent, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but uh, I'm curious about how you think about the future of GDSs and backend technology when it comes to airlines. Is it, you know, Amadeus and all these guys still staying at the f- forefront? And I recognize maybe you can, if your if your opinion is that they'll eventually be obsolete, maybe you can't share that. But um, would uh, you know would love to just kind of hear how you think all of this pans out from a backend airline perspective? Yeah, I mean, look, the the interesting thing is that you know what people. The Amadeus is a, is a massive company, right? That has huge, um, like they're, they're almost like a bunch, they're almost like a conglomerate that have a bunch of businesses that are related, but are not, you know, are, are very, very, very different, right? So they have the consumer business, which would support, um, you know, travel agencies and things like that. Um, and they have a kind of a core PSS business. And then they have, you know, airline 
um, airline software and airline you know systems like the airline business aspect aspect of it airline technology um, so we deal with one aspect of their business but um, but there but there are multiple others like the aspect of the business that charges you know um, revenues per flight segments or whatever is something that we, we don't typically even you know really interact with but I, I maybe I'm a bit contrarian and, and and I'm not I'm not just saying this because of our partnership with Amadeus but I, I think the um, I think that the GDSs do have a very strong role to play in the future. Um, you know, I've, I've spent my fair share of time in, uh, in Nice uh, with the guys at Amadeus. And, you know, they're very, like people, all, I, before I actually met them, I always thought that there were these bunch of old folks that were sitting around, you know, you know, maintaining mainframe computers and, you know, that the systems are all creaky and old and that's just the way that it was. But the reality is, is that, you know, they've got a lot of smart people um, you know, working on a lot of, you know, challenging problems and, and they're essentially trying to, the, the whole system of travel itself is, is complex. You know, I, I think that's a misnomer for a lot of folks to think that it can just be simplified down and that, that there's some silver bullet that's going to result in a, in, in a kind of a completely new way of working. Um, there's so many aspects of travel from, you know, departure control systems, seating, like ancillary products, uh, you know, the, the booking systems. There's just so much stuff that, that, um, that makes up the one word of travel technology or two words of travel technology as a whole that, um, that, that, uh, that I think that the, that, you'll see aspects of it change, but, but it's not going to change, I would say, overnight. And I think the GDSs are going to play a core role of, in that process. Now, the reason we have, um, you know, where, where I, I sort of have a positive perspective around Amadeus' approach is because they're really been engaging quite a bit uh, with respect to partners. Um, so they've been, I would say, more open to working with partners and say what we've seen so far from somebody like, say, Sabre. Um, so, um, you know, over the last few years, Amadeus has really kind of pushed this partner strategy, um, trying to create almost like an app store of, of a partner, third party partner programs that their airline partners can, um, can sign up to. And I think ultimately that's going to be an interesting avenue of uh, innovation for them where they provide a platform that then other people can build onto um, uh, and, and allows them to get both, you know, the benefit of still being of all the relationships that they built with all the airlines around the world, but still being able to bring in new technology. And I think that's kind of how I see the future playing out. Um, keeping in mind, I could be completely wrong. Okay. Uh, very last, uh, uh, last question from us. It's a, it's a very quick one. If we just take you back about 20 minutes ago to uh, something that you said, where you were talking about money and you mm -hmm. said, um, that you, 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 got some money from family I, I believe you said you said you'd never do that again we have a lot of um, entrepreneurs and other startup founders etc listening in can you tell us briefly why you wouldn't do that again it's tough it's tough I, I, don't, I don't know how else to say it I mean when you you know your, your parents uh, I, you know, I took money from my parents. I took money from my brother I took money from myself um, and and once uh, you know and that was you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, from my parents' retirement, um, you know, from my brother's, you know, savings, uh, you know, from my own savings, for the ability to buy a house, or, you know, like, just, I'm sorry, I'm being so personal, but I mean, that is, no, no. Um, you know, I mean, you, you, it's not, and, and you do it because you believe in, in so much in what you're going to do, but then you feel the weight of the world kind of come on your shoulders after that, because you know that, 
there that you've sort of that there is no going back there's no like ah you know i get up one morning and i don't feel like doing this no way you know i feel i have to feel like doing this, this is my parents money you know i have to make this work ultimately um i i have to be successful there's no non there's no that we weren't successful or that like that we, we didn't make it because we couldn't try enough you know so there there isn't there's nothing like that this has to work so um so uh, i think that that's good but i also think that it can put a undue amount of 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 stress and pressure where maybe it's it's sometimes good to have a bit of separation um yeah that's all okay i can only imagine how difficult that must be that kind of <laughs> level level of responsibility that you have to kind of put yourself through given you said it's your parents um, parents money and money from your brother and as you said your own money so uh, thank you very much Azim that was terrific a really great interview thank you for um, especially for sharing so much of uh, you know the the highs and the lows of this uh, this this journey that you've been through since you joined and you know hopefully um, much brighter things uh, to come in the future as you said there's lots of things that can happen as a result of the the, the situation that we have found in that uh, found ourselves in that could actually be uh, more useful or even more useful for the products that you've created so uh, on behalf of david thank you very much as for joining us that was great yeah no problem i, I really appreciate it and uh you know i'm um you know i i, I really think that this is going to be a a crisis that uh with coronavirus that that um you're going to see the travel industry emerge stronger from it's going to look a little different uh but um uh, yeah at least from our business perspective we're very very well positioned for the for the for the, the future okay everyone tuning in you've been listening to another episode of how i got here that is uh, mozio and focus wires weekly backstories on innovation and all interesting things to do with entrepreneurship in travel and transportation uh, thanks as always for listening in thanks to our guest azim burrow duala from valentio and we'll see you next time thanks ever so much Thanks for listening to How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages. And get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week.